0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 8th of November, 2023, on Monocle Radio.
1: Off-year elections in the United States and what they might tell us about next year. Germany and Australia undertake reluctant reversals of migration policy. And should you sack a cabinet minister who seems to be trying to get fired? I'm Andrew Mullett. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Sean Ryan will discuss today's big stories and we'll look at a new report on the state of Eastern European deterrence with one of its authors, the former US Army General Ben Hodges. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Julie Norman, co-director of University College London's Center on US Politics, and by Sean Ryan, Director of Media at Save the Children and former Sunday Times Foreign Editor. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Julie, first of all, you have recently been visiting the United States, which will shortly come in handy because we're going to talk about. It. Did did you visit any exciting key swing states?
2: Well, I did, in fact. I was in Pennsylvania and also Virginia, which I think we'll talk about today. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I was I was there happily not for politics this time, but rather for my grandmother's 101st birthday and she's a total rock star and still uh, still kicking it So uh,
1: That number again 101. Uh, we, we don't often get panelists on here <laughs> who have recently returned from a grandparent's 101st <laughs> birthday so if you want to address her by name and wish your grandmother a happy 101st via the airwaves of Monocle Radio, go right ahead.
2: I will certainly do that. It's going out to Ruth Cashone, a happy 101st so we all love you very much.
1: And so say all of us. Um, Sean, you
0: have been in Ethiopia, which we will not be discussing later in the
1: show, so we should discuss now.
0: I've just come back and uh, I was there to report on a Partnership between Save the Children, where I work, and GSK, the pharmaceutical company, which is giving us £15 million pounds to vaccinate millions of so called zero dose children who have never been vaccinated against anything and are very vulnerable to pneumonia and measles and the like. And the low point of the trip for me was being followed by a giant mosquito from uh, into the shower. They, they breed, them, they breed <laughs> them big in Ethiopia. They do. They, they, and this was on the sixth floor and it had obviously got into the lift and pursued me. Uh, and then it pursued me. You're having bitten me already 20 times <laughs> in the night. so I was very the high point was when we were photographing a family outside their second cloth home and uh, the family camel wandered into shot and made the perfect picture. <laughs>
1: You you, you can't beat that. Um, I I do want to just uh, ask a a follow-up about the vaccinations. What are you vaccinating specifically against? Is it just everything in general? Because the one time I have been to Ethiopia, which was uh, 15 years or so ago now, uh, just in Addis Ababa, but you did not have to walk too far in Addis Ababa to see people who had clearly uh, had polio at some point in their lives, which is, of course, now an
0: entirely preventable disease. We are vaccinating against polio, but the most important one is pneumonia, because that's the biggest infection killer of children under five mm. but measles is also a huge problem. There are regular outbreaks in Ethiopia and that can turn into pneumonia and I saw that myself in a hospital where a mother was looking after two very, very sick children.
1: Well, that is a better week's work than certainly I have done in the last week or arguably ever so suitably humbled. Uh, we will <laughs> return to the United States uh, and everybody pays attention to American elections in presidential election years. A smaller number of demented Obsessives become consumed by the midterms it is only a tiny hardcore of outright weirdos who pay much attention to the off year elections such as were contested across the united states yesterday and welcome you all to the show a handful of house seats and governors mansions were up for grabs along with a few state posts and indeed state legislatures a bunch of town halls and some statewide referendums um julie what leapt out at you from these results?
2: Yeah, so I'm from one of these states, actually, Commonwealth of uh, Virginia, which uh, the legislature was essentially up for grabs. You uh, know, the Democrats came out stronger than was somewhat expected. They um, they kept uh, the the Senate and they flipped the House, and so that was big for them, especially because their governor was seen as a potential um, challenger to Trump, maybe down the road. But I think he'll probably stay where he is now. He's a Republican, uh, a Republican governor. Um, another big race was in Kentucky, where um, the governor. Um, was reelected. He's a Democratic governor in a very right-leaning Republican state. So that was a pretty big win for him. And uh, so I would say some big wins there and some big wins uh, for those pushing for abortion rights and reproductive rights, which suggests that'll still be big on the ticket in 2024.
1: We will come back to that. But I do want to follow up uh, just quickly, Julie, about Governor Andy Beshear in Kentucky, because he does seem a inexplicable anomaly. This is a state that was 62% for Trump in 2020 and 2016. It is a very rural, very conservative state. And yet, Andy Bashir, a Democrat, did not just win re-election, he won it by a street. Is is there something there that the party can learn from nationally, or is this some peculiar Kentucky quirk?
2: Well, I think people will be looking much more closely now, because when he won in 2019, then it was the question, was this just kind of a fluke? But the fact that he won again and buys so much is like, does, he have some kind of secret sauce. I, I will say there are some, uh, he's um, governed very uh, moderately, very centrously, uh, more so than I think many in the Democratic Party base would like. But it's definitely has some cross uh, party appeal. And just has a really good way of um, personal appeal within the state, he knows how to talk to people He knows how to be authentic. And, uh, and that has appealed to voters in a really uh, um, uh, necessary way.
1: Uh, Sean, these election results follow uh, polling of earlier this week, which looked pretty calamitous for Joe Biden. It showed him in six key swing states losing five of them, not only to Donald Trump, uh, but also prospectively to either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis and therefore presumably pretty much anybody. Um Do these results suggest that all may not be lost
0: for the president? It was a good night for the Democrats, Mm. but uh, Biden really needed this good news, didn't he? Because he's two to four points behind Trump in the national polls, the four polls that have uh, come about so far this month. And Trump is rising. So as Trump gets into court more and more and gets more and more of the media attention. It just seems to work for him in terms of popularity. And more and more Democrats are saying that Trump, uh, Biden is just too old to stand. He's about to be 81. He'll be 82 at the time of the election. He's about be... 18 months older than Donald Trump. Well, he's. I think he's a four-year difference, but look at the difference in vigour between them. So so, so Trump is energetic, he's animated, he makes a great speech, he cracks jokes. Uh, Biden doesn't always get to the end of a sentence, he doesn't always get to shuffle off stage. Donald Trump doesn't often get to the start of sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I, I think this is decent news for the Democrats, but it's all to play for with uh, Biden. And I think the hope of a lot of Democrats is that something might happen to Biden and a new Democrat challenger may emerge. Uh, Julie, you mentioned the
1: importance of abortion rights in some of these votes that took place across the United States yesterday. Ohio voted to enshrine abortion rights in its state constitution. That is the seventh successful such measure in seven attempts uh, across the United States. Does this suggest um, with all due deference to the hazards of wishful thinking that the Republican Party's apparent great victory over Roe versus Wade might rather end up blowing up in their face.
2: Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of the the classic it's been called, you know, when when the dog catches the car kind of situation. And finally, the <laughs> Republicans got what they wanted with uh, with that ruling, but it has uh, generated this backlash especially as some states have enacted laws that I think went even further than many in the party ever thought they would with banning all kinds of abortion or with not having any kinds of exceptions and voters even those who lean conservative who are generally Republicans um, have said on this issue, that's just going too far. And uh, they they want some middle ground. So even in states like Ohio, that we expect are leaning more Republican. Now we see this kind of movement on abortion rights.
0: Abortion rights, forgive me, I'm not going to decide the result of the election that will be decided on the economy. Stupid. It'll be about whether people felt they were better off under Trump or now better off under Biden and what they're economic prospects are.
2: Yeah, I think that'll be just as much of a part of it. But so much of our elections come down to those swing states and just, you know, sometimes several thousand votes that will swing one way or the other. So especially if you're reaching out to get women turning out, to get kind of suburban people turning out, things like the abortion issue can just bump it one way or another just enough, as will the economy and other issues too, of course.
1: Just a final thought on exactly that, Julie, the the idea of a single issue in a marginal state. Uh, Joe Biden won Michigan by 150,000 votes in 2020. Uh, Michigan has an enormous Arab slash Muslim population. And there are suggestions that Biden's support among that demographic uh, has absolutely cratered uh, in the last few weeks for the obvious reasons. Now, probably those people are not going to go out and vote for Donald Trump either. But Biden needs them to turn out, doesn't he?
2: That's exactly right. And this is somewhat untested waters. The the Democratic Party is split in a way that it's never been before between uh, Palestine and Israel and support one or the other and there's probably nowhere that's going to be more evident than Michigan where um, uh, one of the house representatives a Palestinian American has been very outspoken um, on this issue and I do think they will lose some votes there um, again at the end of the day this is a year away from many voters this is not going to be the priority issue or the only issue but I think there will some there will be some who who sit this out or definitely aren't as enthusiastic about Biden well let's move
1: along and for the governments of countries sufficiently fortunate that other people want to move to them there is no issue more perpetually vexed than immigration. Two such countries are rethinking their approach. One, Germany, is choosing to become less generous. The other, Australia, might be compelled to become more so. While German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is promising a more rigorous new regime, including the prospect of processing asylum claims abroad, Australia's High Court has ruled that Australia's long-standing policy of indefinite detention of immigrants without valid visas is unlawful. Um, Sean, Germany first do we get the impression that Olaf Scholz's heart is really in this he sort of emerged to make these remarks at an extremely late hour after what seems to have been
0: an extremely rancorous meeting with minor parties he looked exhausted and he appeared to make his announcement somewhat reluctantly but he's facing the rise of the far right in Germany, the AFD party the far right is pulling up more than 20% and there's a huge problem with Germany, you'll remember that Angela Merkel, the acceptance of a million Syrians into Germany more or less did for her career, and now we've seen in Germany this year uh, that the number of uh, immigrants coming into Uh, Germany has gone up by 73% in a year. They're coming from Afghanistan and and Syria and other places. And that's on top of a million Ukrainians. So Schultz um, has got to try to defuse the rise of the right and be seen to be acting in the national interest. So he's talking about restricting benefits for uh, asylum seekers and and possibly doing a a, a Britain with Rwanda and finding a place somewhere in the world where asylum seekers' claims can be processed.
1: Well, doing a Britain with Rwanda, of course, Julie, would mean actually doing nothing whatsoever because that that, that has not yet happened and doesn't really appear all that likely to, except in as much as Rwanda has been given a great deal of money to, it turns out, not actually have to do very much. Um, But is this a a global representation of the bind that any centrist, centre-left, pro-immigration government such as Olaf Scholz leads is in? Because... There is still a reluctance, rightly or wrongly, over mass immigration among a lot of constituencies, and... The case is, is it not that if you are, even if you are a pro immigration government, if you are not seen to get hold of this, somebody else is going to?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's also just a way that we see that as there's been the more right wing populist um, movements, uh, growth of these parties, you're going to see even more left leaning centrists needing to accommodate that and and kind of making some of these overtures. And, um, you know, I don't think it's coincidence that Schultz's comments came shortly after. Italy has been making moves also to restrict immigration and uh, starting to offshore some of their um, recipients to Albania and whatnot. So this is not something that's just limited to Germany. We see in the U.S. right now as well. And it's um, both parties, I think, trying to um, – or more, more left-leaning parties needing to kind of move to the right to keep everyone on board with them. Um, Sean, is there
1: an argument that the conventions which govern immigration and what is more or less unconditional hospitality to people at least seeking asylum while their claims are tested – Have those conventions been overtaken by events? When they were drawn up, the world was a lot less connected. Um, Means of transport, lines of communication were not nearly as open and multifarious as they are now. There
0: were a lot fewer people on the move. I've just been in Ethiopia, as I was mentioning earlier, and the poorest people have phones. And Mm. I've seen this in very poor villages in India, and I've seen it uh, among people driving donkeys and carts in in Myanmar. So these people can see uh, what would await them in the West if they managed to get there. And it's very tempting for families to send, for example, the eldest son uh, in search of a better life for himself, and then possibly bring the family with them or at least get money back to the family. So this is... An apparently unstoppable phenomenon. And I don't know if there's an answer to this, but if there is, part of the answer has got to be um, to... Increase the incentives for people to stay where they are. And if you have no hope and no job and uh, uh, no chances of uh, getting a job in some very poor part of the world, um, you have no incentive to stay. If people were given a little more aid, and I would say this because I work for an aid organisation, <laughs> um, there, there might be economic incentives to, to get them to stay. And I think that should be at least part of the picture as, as the world's politicians grapple with this seemingly intractable problem.
1: Well, in, in the meantime, Julie, Australia, it looks like, is going to be compelled... Uh, to rethink the extremely hard line it has taken. And the hard line it has taken is is summed up in that line of former Prime Minister John Howard's, which has been certainly enthusiastically appropriated by politicians in this country, that we will decide who comes here and the circumstances in which they come here. Now, How- Howard's case, if you take it... You know, in, in the best faith you possibly can was that voters don't dislike immigration. And obviously it would be obtuse for Australians to dislike immigration because almost all of us are or descended there from. But what they dislike is the appearance of disorder, that no one's in charge of this, that there is there is no criteria and no control. Do you think that is the case?
2: I don't know. I think it's a mix, because I would say it's similar in the U.S., where it's, you know, nations of immigrants, and that's often celebrated. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot made about the the chaos at the border and, that you know, no one's uh, no one's dealing with this and that kind of thing. Um, so I think there's some sense of that. But there's also just a lot of um, xenophobia and racism mm. and people not wanting to um, be open to, to immigrants. And then others with more pragmatic, you know, concerns about jobs and the economy and that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's a mix for different people. But um, at the end of the day, for somewhere like Australia, I feel like there Immigration policies have um, have attracted attention for a while because they are a bit more. um, For a while, they've been much more hardline than much of the rest of the world, and so they're finally, I think, getting some revisiting of some cases that have made it that way.
1: They have been extremely hardline, um, you know, verging on just cruel and unusual, as the High Court seems to have decided. But. The trouble is, Sean, when you when you look at the numbers, um, there is one at least which is quite difficult to argue with, which was that in 2001 in Australia, 5,516 people arrived on on migrant boats uh, across the very dangerous oceans to the north of Australia. And those are the ones we know about. Uh, Those are the ones that actually made it um, and were able to be able to be counted. Uh, In 2002, that number had come down to one. So it's,
0: it's arguable, is it not, that the hard line worked? That's a lot of people who didn't drown. The hard line does seem to have worked in Australia, and I think um, Australia has inspired some of the policies that we're seeing put into practice in the UK, because the idea of turning back boats or, or getting the asylum seekers to go somewhere else, if it's worked in one country, people think perhaps it could work for us too. But it's it's a pretty dehumanising way to behave. And I think the... Most uh, senior court in Australia has has done a wonderful thing in in ruling indefinite detention unlawful.
1: And just finally on this, Julie, it is as we have been discussing clearly an extremely vexed question. Does it strike you that anybody has figured this one out?
2: I, I would say no. I mean, and, and I would say as as we talked about before, the the issue itself is changing. The the number of people who are moving, the distances people are traveling, that in itself has changed. So I think even some countries who maybe had policies that were you know, workable, maybe imperfect, but workable, even that has has changed a bit. I mean, I, I used to live in, in Canada and they were they were often following the Australian model and, and struggling with all of this as well. So I think even countries we, we think have it figured out um, are usually struggling internally.
1: Well we are now a little over three weeks away from kickoff at COP twenty-eight, the annual United Nations climate change hand ring, this year being held in Dubai. One inclusion on the guest list already had diplomatic functionaries around the world working on plans to ensure that their employer did not appear in the same photo, President Bashar al-Assad of Syria, who has spent the last 12 years or so demolishing his own country in order to keep his job. However, a report presented to the UK Parliament today suggests President Assad should be disinvited, not merely for the obvious reasons, but because of the enormous environmental damage occasioned by his apparent, if Pyrrhic, victory. Um, Sean, first of all, uh, we'll come to COP28 in a bit, but... There does appear to be consensus among Arab countries, many of which had spent quite a lot of that period regarding Assad as a pariah that uh, he's probably won, we're probably going to have to learn to live with him, let bygones be bygones. Syria's been readmitted to the Arab League, uh, to which he was welcomed in person
0: earlier this year. Why do Arab countries want Syria back in the fold? I think they accept, as you say, that he's going to be there for the long haul. Uh, There was a long period when he looked very vulnerable and people thought he would be, Uh, overthrown by his own people or that America or even Britain will help to intervene and get him out. But now he's uh, still there. He's uh, in a country that is pivotal in the region. And a lot of people think that they need... uh, a relationship with with Syria um, to look ahead to the future and and plan a future of prosperity it 's a hell of a shame though because you've got uh, here one of the uh, most brutal dictators in the world, if not the most brutal dictator mm. he's killed more than three hundred thousand people, including my, my friend and Sunday Times colleague Marie Colvin who was killed in the shelling of a media centre in, in Homs and now we're being told that as well as the humanitarian catastrophe that he's inflicted on his country, uh, he's also uh, created an environmental disaster because under the rubble of all those cities you say have been destroyed uh, are many toxins and a lot of agricultural land has been uh, destroyed and of course there's the small matter of the chemical weapons and the pollution that they left behind when uh, Assad attacks his own people with some of those and so On those grounds, um, it's being described as incongruous that he should be invited to an environmental summit.
1: Well, the difficulty, though, Julie, or at least a difficulty here, is that climate change being a global challenge is going to require the cooperation of pretty much ideally every country many of which are not terribly pleasant or at least not run by terribly pleasant people can can we afford to be squeamish about who gets invited to help save the world
2: yeah it's it's honestly it's good to, it's a good question because honestly like I think we all bristle kind of when you see the normalization around uh, Assad being invited back into things but I will say like <coughs> to do it on environmental grounds seems a little bit like I don't know I feel like when you're talking about war crimes and crimes against humanity and everything else like to me that's more the bar that would maybe distinguish something there, but just saying, oh, you you hurt the environment in your country seems like maybe a little bit of a slippery slope there to start going down. Even though, uh, again, I, I would I would be happy if Assad just uh, stayed put and didn't make himself seen at all these different international summits. And and just to, to tap onto what Sean said too, I do think there's an interest for the Arab League to keep Syria close, especially with Syria's and Assad's per- personal relationship with Iran. I think that was a big part of getting him back into the league and and inviting him to these kinds of big. Uh, um, big things that are happening in Arab states right now. The
0: broader power play of Russia and China exactly. and influence and all the rest of it. And um, I think uh, Saudi Arabia in particular doesn't want to be uh, caught missing out on a potential relationship.
1: Yeah. But, but just to pick up on what you were saying, uh, Sean, uh, as you were delineating the environmental damage done by the war in Syria, do we need to start thinking of that as a war crime in itself? There has been talk among, about this in Ukraine, uh, the crime of ecocide. Uh, they are interesting, interested in trying to get Russia on the hook for... And I did look this up earlier. Rule 45 of the ICRC's Customary International Humanitarian Law says the use of methods or means of warfare that are intended or may be expected to cause widespread, long-term and severe damage to the natural environment is prohibited. Destruction of the natural environment may not be used as a weapon. Obviously, destruction of the natural environment has been used as a weapon in pretty much
0: every war ever fought. But should this be taken more seriously? There is a case to be made for that. But I mean, I think what the Russians have done in Ukraine fits that bill uh, more closely. So if you're going to destroy dams and flood cities and if you're going to... Um, jeopardise the security of nuclear power stations, that's in a different league I think to what's happened in Syria where surely the environmental crimes are outweighed by the crimes against humanity
1: Uh, Just finally on Assad, uh, Julie, in the current context, does he look even more than usual like something of a beneficiary of the double standard of international judgment of the Middle East? This is a man who has presided over a conflict which has killed or displaced hundreds of thousands of Arabs, hundreds of thousands of Muslims. There has not been, to my recollection, a single large-scale demonstration against Syria choking the streets of London.
2: Yeah, it's true, and I would say you know Syria's been off the uh, the global radar I think for a little while now. I mean, the the war was raging so strong for so long, and I think did have the demonstrations for a while, but we don't see that now. Obviously, tension has shifted to Gaza and elsewhere in the the subsequent years. But for those in the region, Syria still looms quite large, and it's just uh, you know, uh, and and I would say within Syria too, there's still a viable um, population that's that's still very opposed to Assad, but he's shown what he will do in any kind of uh, anything regionally. So. We, we don't expect it domestically. But I think internationally, it's something that just kind of um, faded as these things unfortunately often do. Well, to British
1: politics, and it is a common failing of angry people on social media to assume that politics is more than it appears. They perceive cunning and calculation in what is actually incompetence at worst, and the perils of trying to do an impossible job at best. These rival schools of thought are currently contemplating the increasingly undisciplined behaviour of UK Home Secretary Sowellar, Braverman. While there are those willing to accept that Braverman is merely being Braverman, others insist an artful contrivance to get sacked in order to better position herself for a tilt at the leadership following the Conservative Party's likely demolition at the next election. Uh, Sean, do
0: we imagine that Suella Braverman is that smart? She could be, because if she stays on in Rishi Sunak's government until the next election, it could it could be a year away, she'll become closely associated with some of its failures. But if she gets out, if she gets forced out uh, on a point of principle that really would enhance her popularity on the right of the party, she then beats... Kami Badenoch, a cabinet rival, as the leading candidate of the right to succeed Sunak. So her references to being homeless as a lifestyle choice, Mm. her references to pro-Palestinian demonstrations as hate marches are the kind of thing calculated, you would think, to upset Sunak so much that he thinks that in order to get the centre ground at the next British election, um, he needs to distance himself from her and get rid of her out of the government. So she could be getting herself sacked in order to further her ambitions. Uh, There is a depressing prospect
1: implicit there, Julie, which is that the likely trajectory for the Conservative Party on the other side of a still widely anticipated defeat is that it will go full crackpot, which I measured against its recent behaviour is quite the prospect. Do you think it is actually possible that the trajectory we've seen charted by it's more or less American analogue. The Republican Party could be something we're about to see here.
2: Yeah, it's curious because I will say like Braverman to me does kind of stand out as a bit of an anomaly within the current Tory party, at least within um, within Sunak's government. And and to me, I often point this out as a contrast to the US, like the, the, two, um, the two conservative movements have, to me, gone in somewhat opposite directions. And I don't, uh, I'm not sure what will happen in both, but I, I feel like the mood feels different to me in the UK than it does in the US, that I don't see a widespread embrace of the kinds of things Braverman says. I mean, it makes the headlines when she says these things as opposed to Trump where it's just like, you know, a normal Tuesday or something like that. So I don't know how much traction it'll get, but I feel in an election year, things like this do tend to get traction, unfortunately, and I'm just not sure how much of an audience there is for it. I
1: I, I did want to ask you finally, you first, Sean, whether you have ever yourself done or seen somebody do what I think is a quite similar thing. I think there is a tendency among people who find themselves in a professional or personal situation that has become disagreeable. They can't face having the actual conversation or making the actual decision themselves. So they just behave increasingly like a jerk uh, until they get canned, at which point they then have what they want and also get to feel like the victim.
0: I would never do such a thing. (laughs) How could you suggest that? But I worked at the Sunday Times for a long time, and there was a famous story that Andrew Neil, when he was editor, when he was a new editor, he did a tour of the building and it was a warren of little rooms in those days, and right at the back of the office he found two old timers, and he asked them when they last had a story in the paper, and neither of them had a story in the paper for the last year. So they were waiting for their severance payment. (laughs) They were waiting for their redundancy payment. They were taking their long lunches. They were becoming the office gossip. They were doing everything they could to make themselves unpopular. And of course they, under the terms of their contract, did leave with large payments. Oh, those were the days. Julie, have, have, have you ever contrived to get
1: yourself fired to your personal advantage?
2: I was trying to think about honestly when you described this whole like uh, dynamic. I can think of some like ex boyfriends who maybe like played that (laughs) that that, that game. Um, But uh, no, for myself, I I used I worked. I mean, you've already
1: named your grandmother. Is it any (laughs) any any more people you want to give a shout out to?
2: Oh my god! (laughs) Uh, No, I will say I once intentionally got uh, got myself fired from a a grocery checkout. Uh, um, position, just the the boss was bad and I was just, there was a customer who wanted to pay with a $100 bill and wanted all new bills back and uh, I just told her flat out that we're not a bank and I wasn't going to do it and he overheard and that was that.
1: (laughs) And it's been downhill ever since. A a, a promising career checking groceries evaporated on the spot. Uh, Such are the perils of taking a hard line. Uh, Julie Norman and Sean Ryan, thank you both for joining us. And finally, on today's show, it was becoming difficult enough to keep European governments and publics focused on Ukraine even before Hamas launched its attacks on Israel on October the 7th. It was a reminder, if one were needed, that any hopes the United States might have had of being permitted to concentrate on one crisis at a time were somewhat optimistic. Well, earlier I was joined in the studio by former US Army General Ben Hodges, who from 2014 to 2017 commanded US Army forces in Europe, and who recently co-authored the Globesec report, Will the Eastern Flank Be Battle Ready? Deterrence by 2030. I began by asking General
3: Hodges how much more deterred Russia still needs to be. Of course, deterrence is in the mind of the potential aggressor. And based on what I hear coming from the Kremlin, based on what they're continuing to do in Ukraine and their support for Iran and all the other bits of aggression around the Russian periphery, I think that once they're done with Ukraine, in their mind, then they're going to turn west. Is what's needed to deter Russia, though,
1: is it merely a question of military might, or is it more about demonstrating
3: the political will to use that military might if necessary? Deterrence is based on having demonstrated capability and demonstrated will to use that capability. So you're exactly right. They have to see political will as well as Lots of equipment, well-trained troops, lots of ammunition, those kinds of things. I I think this war in Ukraine is what failed deterrence looks like, because they were pretty sure that we, as an alliance, would not react, that we were not coherent. They saw the chaos in the United States. Germany was still building North Stream 2. And uh, we had failed to act after they invaded Georgia, after they had invaded Ukraine in 2014. After they had helped the Assad regime kill thousands of his own people, we had done nothing. So political will is perhaps more important than really nice modern tanks. In practical terms, then, if we are talking
1: about that eastern flank being battle-ready by 2030, that gives us, well, a little
3: less than seven years to do it. What practical changes do you want to see? Four things. Number one, and the reason we picked... Two thousand thirty as the goal was because that's a sort of a combination of when we think Russia will have retooled and and rebuilt itself after its disaster in Ukraine, and also we think it's going to take that much time to get our own industry up to full speed and capacity that would be needed for effective deterrence and defense so we did we are trying to aim far enough out to spur action, so the things that are needed. Number one, we have to implement what the alliance has agreed at the Vilnius Summit, which are these regional plans, increased level of readiness, nations agreeing to 2% as the floor, not an aspiration. So implement what's been agreed. Number two, integrated air and missile defense. After watching Russia use multimillion-dollar precision weapons against apartment buildings, hospitals, shopping centers... It's clear that our requirement for air and missile defense is much more than just protecting a few seaports and a few airfields. And we do not have enough air and missile defense right now to defend the most critical infrastructure as well as millions of European citizens. The third thing is ammunition, specifically ammunition, not just artillery ammunition, but all the different types of munitions that are being used, enormous quantities as we're seeing in Ukraine, but also what I think we're seeing Israel have to use and will be using as well. The fourth thing is what we call readiness. The ability to actually do your job as an Army, Navy, Air Force. and That means units are fully trained, equipped, able to do their tasks that's what we've got to improve.
1: And how much of this is going to be Europe having to figure out how to do all this by itself, if necessary, because NATO had one significant jolt from the the first election of Donald Trump in 2016. It is not impossible that he could be reelected in 2024. And, And if that does occur, it is not impossible that he could
3: go as far as withdrawing the United States from NATO. Yeah, this is a real concern. I think this is why the Russians are pouring so much money into disinformation trying to disrupt our elections as they did last time. They would love to see Donald J. Trump as president again. And I have to say that I'm shocked and worried that there are still so many in the Republican Party that echo Kremlin talking points or that whatever question providing aid to Ukraine against Russia, I'm sure Ronald Reagan, if he were here today, would not recognize his, his own party. But we do have to think about that dreadful possibility that Trump could be Back in office, although i am I am doubtful it will happen even though millions of Americans would vote for him even if he was in jail i don 't know that there will be enough a year from now this is over a year, but to the point of your question yes europeans their security requirements don't change just because the United States perhaps may be in a in a different place that doesn't change the fact that Russia still wants to dominate Europe. Do you think there still needs to
1: be a rethinking, though, of official NATO doctrine regarding Russia, specifically this NATO-Russia Founding Act of 1997, which didn't necessarily envisage that Russia would
3: forever be this eternal adversary? I think that all of us were, maybe naive is not the right word, but we were all hopeful that Russia was somehow going to be a partner. But it, it, There was even some wild talk of Russia joining NATO at various points in the 90s. Fortunately, that crazy thought passed. <laughs> Look, Russia has been an empire for the last five centuries. They've never had to atone for or reckon with who they are. I mean, you've never had a, a situation where they were crushed in a war, and then you had Russian officers and leaders standing, trial in like the Nazis did in Nuremberg mm. or the Japan, Imperial Japan had to do. Until that happens, until Russia is actually defeated, we're just going to keep having this series of people, Putin or people like. Putin, that's who they are. So, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, well-intended. I can even remember in 1996, we had Russian troops with us in Bosnia Mm -hmm. when the NATO Implementation Force went in to implement the Dayton Peace Accord. I thought, wow, this might actually happen. But President Putin has no interest, really has no interest in doing that. And so, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, you know, the, the text, the preamble basically says, As long as the current security situation remains as it is, then blah, blah, blah. But of course, the Russians blew that out of the water when they invaded Georgia and invaded Ukraine in 2014.
1: This report was obviously written before the current war began between Israel and Hamas. Do you see that war as a danger for Ukraine, by which I guess I'm asking how dependent on international attention international sympathy is Ukraine
3: as it conducts its defense. So you've hit on I think one of the most important points that I had hoped we would discuss. These are not isolated coincidences. Kremlin Russia benefits more from Hamas attack on Israel than anybody. Because of exactly of that it distracts international attention from Russia. Of course, it's going to uh, cause diversion of some ammunition, uh, mm. disruptions to these kinds of things. So, and who's Russia's closest ally? It's not China; it's it's Iran. And so, I think that Iran and Russia are working together. I don't think we'll find a document where Putin says, "Dear Ayatollah, <laughs> on this date, we want you to whatever." But there's no doubt that they are uh, have shared interests. They're working together, and I think the timing is not a coincidence this is all does, does together this,
1: does this not credit russia somewhat with a capacity for joined up strategic planning that they have not much demonstrated on the battlefield in but, ukraine
3: well coordinating with their long-time ally iran is much different from being able to conduct joint operations on mm. the on the battlefield their ability to provide money resources probably technology to iran in return for Shahid drones and to sow disinformation everywhere They've always been very good at that. So I think what my president said, President Biden, the other night, you know, we have to look at these together, that the West has to not just NATO, but the West has to be organized, come together and address these threats as parts of a whole and think strategically about how do you help Israel defend itself against Hamas? Within the context of of fighting in accordance with the law of armed conflict, Mm. I mean, my president's been very clear about that as well, but helping Ukraine defeat Russia, the best way to help Israel, in addition to giving them weapons to fight against Hamas, is to help Ukraine defeat Russia. That will make it much more difficult for Iran. And of course, China is watching all of this to see, are we serious about defending the things we say we care about, the so-called international rules-based order? And do we have the capacity to ammunition, equipment, intelligence, forces to be able to support Israel, support Ukraine, and still deter China?
1: I just want to move finally then from the macro to the micro, if you will. Any major conflict, such as Ukraine's defense uh, of itself from Russia does bring about major advances in technology. It changes the way wars are fought. But as we speak, we are presumably on the verge of the Israel Defense Forces attempting to take at least some of the Gaza Strip by land. Going back to the invasion of Iraq by the United States 20 years ago, you commanded the 1st Brigade of the 101st Airborne at the Battle of Najaf. 20 years on from that, do you see that urban warfare has changed in its fundamentals in any respect? Is the kind of, I guess, drone technology, especially that we've seen used to such effect in Ukraine, going to make any difference
3: trying to fight through some like an urban environment like Gaza? That is a great question. I think if you're an Israeli soldier right now and you're thinking about what you might have to do, mm. or maybe say a young captain that's responsible for a company of troops this is going to be very, very difficult. First of all, just the nature of urban warfare. The enemy has so many different places from which they can attack. From below ground, obviously, the the tunnels in Gaza are widely known. So that's going to be a problem. Buildings. You know, Hamas, I think, wants this to happen. So buildings are prepared, all sorts of challenges for these soldiers. And, of course, the soldiers' the Israeli army operates under the same law of armed conflict that British and American troops do. And so they're going to be doing all that they can to avoid damaging or injuring innocent civilians who were stuck there. And plus they know the whole world is watching mm. exactly that. And and so this is going to be very, very difficult. I expect that they'll be methodical. You know, last night they conducted a uh, a raid with tanks and infantry into a part of the city. For some tactical task and then and then withdrew, I think we'll see a lot of that, this sort of probing to find out to minimize their own casualties, but also, I think, in a sincere effort to limit the damage collateral damage, but it I mean let's be candid, it will be impossible to avoid civilian casualties in this case, and of course, Hamas welcomes that as well because it it will increase the pressure on Israel.
1: That was former U.S. Army General Ben Hodges speaking to me earlier. The Globesec report, Will the Eastern Flank Be Battle Ready, can be found on Globesec's website. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panels today, Julie Norman and Sean Ryan. The show was produced by Vincent MacAvaney and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.